0: I didn't know it, but last week's talk about that Tim Keller tweet thread made me discover a real war happening inside evangelicalism. But first I want to start with sloppy theological arguments about student loan forgiveness on the Core True Act Show. This is the best, thing, the best Consider the hornet's nest kicked. I didn't even know there was a nest or hornets in it, but several of you reached out to me with articles and other tweet threads about this Tim Keller thing, and it's much more broad than I thought. There's a a larger disagreement and argument happening in evangelicalism in the West, or at least in the United States, regarding how or if, if and how, we, the believer, engages in civics, in politics, I hate that word, but politics and or government. And I went on the deep dive, and I, what's what's hard, maybe you've noticed this in your life, one of the hardest disagreements to adjudicate is when people on both sides are people you like. And that's part of what I want to work with through with you today. I will preview it this way as well. I think this is important. One of, maybe, Maybe one of the more important shows I've done in months and months or in the seven years of the show. Uh, Because it has a lot of implications about how we're supposed to behave right now and what happens in the future. I forgot to tell you that I am Corey Truax, your trying-to-be-humble host right here on His Radio Talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk on The Corey Truax Show. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just look for my very unique name, Corey Truax. I would love to connect with you there. Amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings. You are invited. Would love to see you there. And as I do from time to time, if you find the show on the Anchor app or you go to anchor.fm and find the show, you will find a very easy way to give to the show monthly. Us bunch of you do, and I'm grateful for that. And if I, I mean that, I, oh, I don't ever want to sound insincere because I do mean that. Thank you for those that do, and those that don't. That's cool too. Thanks for being here. All right, let's do this thing on student loan forgiveness. Here is the catalyst. I saw a meme that said something like, "All these Christians out here upset about student loan forgiveness when your whole faith is about your debts being forgiven." I think a lot of you just have the theological rigor to immediately know, yeah, that's different. Sin debt, financial debt. I mean, <laughs> financial debt is often things we choose. We, we write our name down. Our, our sin debt is the nature in and of ourselves. And then out of our nature, we choose to, to intensify our sin. And then we've incurred a debt that Jesus pays. Immediately, you know the two things aren't analogous. If you have any kind of theological astuteness but then even further i it is part of my it's part of my practice i think a healthy practice when it comes to news and information is to take a look at people who disagree with you and so with some regularity i go to sojo.net sojo.net it's they call themselves from the christian left i suspect most of them are just pagans. They have made up a Jesus. They've made up a God. It's strangely in their own image that God always agrees with them. But there was a long article there from a guy who very incorrectly said something to the effect of, I paid off my student loans, and that doesn't make me bitter if if you get yours paid off as well, or something like that. So I just want to walk through this because there are people using Bible now. I have given you student loan forgiveness arguments before, but this now is specifically getting argued from a biblical perspective, and that's where I always want to stay. I want to uh, start here. When I talked about student loan forgiveness before, a couple of you reached out, I think, with good arguments, saying student loan forgiveness and loan forgiveness in general is not inherently sinful or inherently transgressive. Your argument was... In ancient Israel, in a theocracy ruled by Yahweh God, there was some debt forgiveness every seven years. There was the great year of Jubilee every 49th or 50th year. I can't remember exactly if it was 49 or 50, where there was a big reset when it comes to debt, property, all that stuff. And so your argument being, it cannot be inherently evil, inherently sinful or transgressive, because the Lord did something like it in his own system. And I accept that argument the idea of debt forgiveness is not inherently sinful or transgressive. But now, with that said, the motives and method of a debt forgiveness certainly can be. Now, here we go to argue it. What I've seen is there's two arguments I gave you. One is your entire faith is about debt forgiveness forgiveness, because it's your sin debt. Or I've seen it argued, I can't believe there's these people that wouldn't be happy for others, if they had a good thing happen to them, I, you know, I see a bunch of people out here saying, "I worked hard to pay off my debts, so you should have to pay off yours." Well, why wouldn't they just be happy for somebody else? Well, a couple things here. Uh, one, we've already talked about the difference between sin debt and financial debt. If you don't, if you can't start there and just see that the two things are not the same, we have a lot of work to do when you theologically, like just elementary stuff there, in terms of, choose, especially college debt. Which is always a choice. Every single time, you just choose to take it on with the pledge that you will pay it back. I would uh, let's start with this. There's a there's a great law in Numbers. I think it's in Numbers 13. uh, No, Numbers 31. I think I had that switched. Something to the effect of when you vow, keep your vow. When you give your word, keep your word. In the New Testament, you might have James say, "Let your I think that's James. Let your yes be yes." When you agree to something, do it. When you have taken out a loan, pay it back. Psalm 37, in a different kind of context, but it it matches here, the concept. It says something like, Wicked people borrow and do not pay back. The righteous are generous and they give. So the, the righteous, some people have used that to say, See, the righteous shouldn't even take out loans. That's not what it says. It just says righteous people, when they have things, they are generous. They give to others. It's not the borrowing that makes the wicked wicked in Psalm 37. It's the fact that they borrow and they don't pay back. Ecclesiastes 5 says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has pleasure and no fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, that's not about finances. That's about making promises to God. This is a very fraught practice, promising God things. He's not one to be bartered with. He's one to be obeyed. But if, in part, our treatment of God is, if you do vow, keep it. If you vowed to pay, pay it. If we are to treat God in this way, well, certainly his image bearers also deserve that honor. If you vow, keep it. If you pledge to pay, pay. In Romans 13, primarily about government, Paul says to give honor to whom is honor taxes to whom you're owed taxes, but also revenue to whom you're owed revenue, to who you owe revenue. It's just a very Christian thing to pay back the people you took from. And so it's not that I'm not angry or upset with student loan forgiveness because I struggled to pay. I didn't really struggle, but I struggled to pay mine back. And now I demand someone else struggle to do it. That's not our objection to student loan debt biblically. It's not that, well, it was hard on us, it should be hard on them. I think, yeah, that's probably an unbiblical, probably, probably an unbiblical attitude to just say, well, because I had hard times, I want them to have hard times. The, the biblical concept here is simply this. You need to take responsibility for yourself. We are such an immature people. That's one of our big national problems is a crisis of maturity. When you grow up, you're a man, you're a woman. You pay back the stuff you owe. You stop looking at other people and saying, will you please help me? And hey, now listen, Some there are times in life we all need help. And that is what a family is for. Brothers and sisters and church family and parents. And it looks various ways for various people. But to just look to your random neighbor and ask for them to... just It's not even a neighbor you know. It's, It's one of the reasons that it's so objectionable to me. People you don't know. You're just demanding, you pay my debt for me. And then when you get into the mechanics of that, the idea, depending on what student loan forgiveness program was implemented, you can run into a situation where... Someone who's who never went to college but worked hard and has has really scratched out a pretty good life for themselves end up paying for the master's degree someone else got in a very unuseful field. It's it's one thing if we were saying something very specific, like we want to uh, forgive, we want to forgive half of the loan balance for people who work in these critical fields, have worked in these fields for this long, and you know, d- didn't go to artificially inflated schools. Like, if you if you chose, if you could get in and you chose to go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton or you, I mean, some of these very expensive universities, you did that. I think of one of my favorite commentators right now. I'm in an Allie Beth Stuckey phase. She chose to go to Furman University here in Greenville. She's from Dallas, but she went to Furman University. I think Furman this year is like seventy grand tuition room and board. You can also just ride on over to North Greenville for half, well, less than half that or go to a local public university for much less. And if you chose to go pay the private tuition and you took out loans to do it, all right, that's on you now. That's just a matter, biblically, that's just a matter of responsibility. And to look to someone else to ask them to pay back your debt when you took it out of your own cognizance, of your own volition, yeah, well, the wicked borrows and doesn't pay back. It's the righteous that are generous and give. It is not the righteous that look for others to pay their debts. And so I will sum this up, take the early break, because I think we're going to need the whole show to do the other topic, because there's a lot there, or at least the rest of the whole show. So to sum up, I'm seeing Bible now used that compares financial debt that someone shows versus our sin debt, which is naturally in us, and then we do choose to sin. These are not analogous, and it's a really dangerous thing to equate sin that which condemns us to eternal death without redemption through Jesus and a student loan. Yeah, it's very dangerous to equate those two things. And then second, the attribute we are people like me are being given that, well, we want people to struggle and I just because you had to struggle. I know I don't. I just think you're an adult. Grow up. Grow up, pay your own debts. That's my objection. And I think Bible there, right? I lay out some Bible. That was in some point, at some level, proof texting, but I went to all the, the context and I, I believe I I have exegeted to those those to you faithfully that when you make a vow when you take a loan when you come to an agreement you give you give revenue to whom you have pledged your revenue and you pay back your debts. When we come back, I had an experience at Artisphere in Greenville, plus had some feedback from last week's show that led me down quite the evangelical war room of a rabbit trail. I'll do that. And more when you come back for the rest of The True Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on His Radio Talk. What do you do when friends or family or folks you admire very deeply disagree on a given topic? When that happens, one of our most natural sorting mechanisms fails us. And that requires us to do a lot of deep thinking. Welcome back to The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I would be grateful if you connected to me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Find me there. Send me stuff for the show. You can do that on the messaging apps there through social media, or you can send me an email, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Let me give you two catalysts. Last week, I did a little thread, or actually quite a bit of content, On Tim Keller kind of missing the mark, the pastor from a Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, author of a bunch of books, and one of the most influential elements of my life theologically and in communication skills, just missed the mark some some on a political political issue. A couple folks wrote to me with more resources on that, and I started doing the deep, deep dive on Twitter. What I recognized was... A bunch of people I like have been arguing now for months. I did not, I've not really seen it. Don't know how I didn't get the content on their blogs and see some of these Twitter threads, but they have been arguing about what it looks like to be a Christian in the United States of America interacting with our political systems. And these people who are disagreeing vehemently, I like all of them. It's one of our human nature, uh, well, what's the best way to say this? One human nature instinct we have is not to engage with ideas, but instead to decide which personalities support an idea, and we know who we like. We know who we trust. So since we like or trust person A, I don't know for sure about what person A is saying, but I know I like that person, and they're disagreeing with person B, and I don't even really know person B, but I definitely think person A's got to be right, because I mean I know him. I like him. So what happens when you like and approve of both of them? That's what I've been struggling with. There's also this experience that led me to want to do the rest of the show, probably, on this topic. I was downtown Greenville with my bride-to-be, and we were walking through Artisphere. And I, I noticed a, a guy wearing a Let's Go Brandon shirt. I've done enough content on that phrase, that very vulgar phrase. I just th- This is what hit me. One of my big themes over the last year or so on the show and just in personal conversation with people is my own personal desire to preserve shared spaces that in the culture in which I live, believers, Christians can stand in the same places and be in the same places with non-believers and for us to be nice and like each other and not have to be cantankerous. That's a desire of mine that conservative and liberal people could live generally next to one another and not want to destroy each other. And so I, I'm desperate for shared spaces. It's why I so vehemently push back against secular leftism and schools because I want to share the schools. It's why I vehemently push back and feel and feel okay about the pushback against Disney because I want to share Disney. Can we all have it, or does the secular left get to just have it and, and choke it? I want shared spaces. I want to be with. I want all kinds of different people to be able to exist together in something resembling harmony. And I saw that guy in that shirt, and it was one of the, those examples. I want, like, why'd you have to do that? On purpose, o- only to anger one group of people and make sure you're identifying with another, go to one of the most crowded events in your city and introduce hostility and vulgarity into it. I want shared spaces. And now I'm seeing inside folks who agree with me, generally, that's that might not be the eth- ethic for everybody. I have noticed that there's some folks in evangelicalism, not just conservatism, evangelicalism, that are getting a a little testy. They want to fight. And they don't want to fight for neutrality, it, it seems. I'll just give you some of the names here. I've been reading from Rod Dreher, who wrote The Benedict Option, which I thought was a great book, about what one version of modern monasticism might look like. Some of the writers at First Things, I think FirstThings.org is one of the most important Christian blogs in the in the country. They're very wise. A lot of great thinking comes out of First Things. Guys like even a little bit from Vodie Baccom, I found in this realm. I would put, I don't put I don't think he's a Christian. He's not a believer, but Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire. They they seem to use language of war. That there are people now, secular progressive people, they are trying to destroy you. And you don't just want to disarm them, you want to destroy them back. They they must not be restrained from doing evil to you, but you must get aggressive with them. And there are other voices. Like Tim Keller. Eric Erickson. He's a talk show host and, and a believer. Uh... David French, who used to write for the Dispatch. Can't remember who he writes for now, but this guy is an attorney. He used to work for one of those organizations that just argued religious liberty cases. This is a brother. And here's the thing. All those guys, you know, I I would put in the other camp, too, the combative group, John MacArthur. Here's what I I know. Rod Dreher and Vodi Bachum and Eric Erickson and the guys from First Things and Tim Keller, while they're all fighting right now kind of cantankerously, We're all going to be in the kingdom together. We're all in orthodoxy. So it's hard to see the fighting. Let me sum up for you the argument they're having. For a long time, Tim Keller has been teaching this concept when it comes to the Christian and his or her political engagement. He has taught the concept that the gospel itself is offensive, and it is. The gospel first is saying to you, there is a God with a standard that you have not met. You have, excuse me, that you have not met. You have transgressed his standard and judgment is coming. The gospel is offensive by nature. So, he then says, all the other agenda items in your life, including politics, it's so subservient to the gospel. Don't be needlessly offensive the way you communicate your politics or your view on media or your view on entertainments or anything else, don't be needlessly offensive because then you have put a stumbling block, some kind of affront to somebody that's going to make it harder to communicate the actual offensive thing, which is the gospel, and all we're here is trying to get to the gospel. And along the way, as Keller made that argument, he was getting critiqued. Critiqued for feeling like he wasn't taking a righteous side for being a mushy, mushy middle and not condemning that which needs to be condemned. The, the the those folks on the other side of like a keller and a French would say and I would I would put Eric Erickson on that side. They're saying there is there is a war here and there's one side that likes us, that generally will align with us and they're flawed and cowardly but they're at least workable and we can defend ourselves by aligning with them so let's very clearly align with them and the the side they're aligned against excuse me the 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 side they are fighting against and trying to restrict they're full of a bunch of pagans and they want to destroy you they want to destroy your church they want to shut down your ability to speak free things uh, to speak christian things they want to make it impossible for you to really have the church do its work in the world, and so let's partner with one side and and defeat those who are trying to do that to us. And then, guys like so get, get that argument. One, we got a, we got a guy saying, "Listen, the gospel is offensive enough. Don't align yourself too closely with any kind of political battle, because then you'll obscure the gospel." And some guys say, "Well." These other guys are coming to take away your ability to share the gospel, so you better align yourself publicly and get to get into this political fight, or your ability to share the gospel is going to go away. And then guys like Tim Keller or David French, some others, respond with a th- a third-way type thinking. You know how I am about third-ways. I love third, fourth, fifth, and sixth-ways. I cannot stand the binary this culture constantly tries to put us into. Guys like Keller and French will say, Okay, yeah, do politics, but politics is done really in an apologetic nature, meaning, yeah, we can be involved in politics, and not can, should be, should be involved in government and civics and speaking out and being activists and voting and donating, all that stuff, but only as a method of speaking gospel truths. So we don't want to leave the room that is doing political things because then we want we want that room to be filled with someone talking about gospel stuff. So, in that in that realm, this is important. If your goal in getting involved in politics or government or civics is to make sure gospel truths are spoken into each issue, here's something that will blow some folks' minds: the outcome of the political battle the election, the legislation, the vote, the referendum, the amendment, whatever that is, whatever those things are, those outcomes aren't the ultimate goal. So we do want a given outcome, an election result, a bill passed, a referendum affirmed. But if your first purpose in being involved in politics and government and civics is just to make the gospel known, to say whatever was true, The outcome isn't the ultimate goal. It was just to get the truth put out there. And so if you lose, you're okay. I didn't come to win. I came to be faithful, faithful to speak that which is true, and faithful to speak a gospel truth into every scenario and situation. But that third way of saying, yes, engage, be involved... Even if you are going to be involved in a way that, if you appears partisan, will at least do it only to speak the truth, it's not just to win. You're not. You're not. Your ultimate goal is not to win these earthly battles. Enter a guy at first things. That's that's the argument thus far. Enter a guy at first things. If you don't read first things, I highly recommend it. A guy, at James Wood, and he wrote a fairly long article to cement what I saw of to the as the objection to that point. He, he wrote this really good article, and he opens with a lot of admiration for a guy like Tim Keller. And he, he opens the article with how his approach in New York City was successful and good. It was a good, that, that idea of a third way, where if, if we're, if we're going to do politics at all, we're just doing it to say the true things, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, I'm not going to be taking a side. I'm not doing battle with the world. I want to win the world, win them over, not win over them. This guy, James Wood, says all that was good for that time. And then he says this, and Tim Keller was a man for his time, and his time has passed. That now circumstances, the new world that we're in, that approach is no longer viable. James Wood breaks it down this way. He said, there was once a positive world. The United States was in a Christian positive world. You can go from the, let's go with the founding of the country, he says, all the way until 1994, where being a Christian was helpful. If you put a fish on your car or your business card or the sign for your business, people liked that. They wanted to work with Christians. If you were going to run for office or get promoted high enough in in companies and organizations, you needed to be a a Catholic or a a Protestant or you, you needed to be some kind of Christian if you're going to advance yourself admit being a good citizen he said that was the positive world and the positive world ended he says in 1994 I wish he would give his true inflection point like why he chose 94. I have some ideas about why in part I think it's the the internet age really starts to take off and so uh, otherwise small groups, of people started to become less marginalized because their voices were amplified artificially through the internet. But whatever, he never gives a reason why. He says, '94 ends the positive world, and then from 1994 until 2014, we lived in a neutral world, and that's what this guy from First First Things, James Wood, he argues that's the world where Tim Keller can be very uh, successful in a neutral world where Christianity's seen as a eccentric. Alternative lifestyle—it's just a little weird, but it's you know they're just, they're fine. They're just, they're just Christians. They do things a little differently than we do. It's in that world that Tim Keller can thrive, where you don't take sides on anything you don't take political sides. If you engage, you just speak gospel truth. You're not really concerned about the outcome because in the end, the world generally treats us in a neutral way, and so politics is at the 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 end of, of things: government, and elections, and bills passing. It's got some importance, but it's not It's not the end all, and so I'm just going to do gospel work. He says, James Wood, that that approach, I think an approach that I would advocate, that ended in 2014. He does give a clear line on that. In, in 2014, the Obergefell decision was handed down from the Supreme Court, a very garbage decision, poorly reasoned. Part of the Anthony Kennedy decision, if you read it, sounds like a Nicholas Sparks novel. And he says that was the end of the neutral world. We went from a positive world to a neutral world, and now we're in the negative world. We're in the world where Christian thinking on family, sexuality, on the role of government, all of the, uh, on gender, these are the new immoralities. The world now looks at us with its religion, its secular, progressive, leftist religion, and says to Christians, you are the pagans, you are the immoral ones, and we will destroy the the pagans. And so he says that 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 thing that Keller did that Eric Erickson, that Tim uh, excuse me that David French this thing that they promulgate and I I would put some more I put some more people in that camp. I think the way I've heard him talk about it I put Matt Chandler in that camp. I'd put David Platt in that camp. I think I'd put Russell Moore in that camp. I know he's not popular with a lot of you but that idea of do politics so that there can be a gospel witness. The outcome of everything is not the end of the world. This guy writes, "That time has passed, and now it's time for war." He even argues from a Rod a Rod Dreher article that I went to read. Something I something I didn't know, admittedly, but he says this right now in Syria, there is a dictatorship by run by a guy named Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad is a secular guy. He's not, I mean, he's Muslim by name, but doesn't really practice, and so he runs the country in a secular way. It's not an Islamic republic. And apparently, for the Christians who are in Syria, the Christians in Syria largely support the dictator Bashar al-Assad. And they support the dictator, Assad, because if this is the way they see it, if he's not in tr- in control, then the Sunnis or the Shia Muslims will take over and they will kill us. And so in our political environment, being a Christian in Syria, consider that for a second, being a Christian in Syria and the political decisions you have to make versus the ones we have to make here. Those Christians in Syria say, to preserve our lives, we support the dictatorship. And what guides like Roger. And this guy, James Woods from First Things, and I don't think Vodi Bacham said something that provocative yet. I, and I don't think some like uh, I actually don't know that Matt Walsh would back off of what I'm about to say here. It's it sounds like for some of them they've they've gotten to a spot where they're saying it's time to do whatever it takes, support whoever you have to support. No tactic is off is off limits. Because we're in danger now. Rod Dreher, actually, specifically, in this conversation going back and forth, they're all writing blogs back and forth to each other. Name, they're naming each other. so And they seem all to be somewhat friends, but they're really, this does not seem friendly sometimes. Dreher specifically argues, we need to get government power and we need to use it. We need to take control of the legislature. We need to take control of the executive, of the courts, and impose our will, impose our values, because if we don't, that's what they're going to do to us. And So guys like Keller and French would say back, okay, so you lose. You lose your government. Be faithful in the ministry. Be, be faithful in the gospel. You, but don't turn your back on your ethics and your standards because you're scared. Don't do that. And Dre would say back, there's no honor in that. Would you say that? To, would you say that there's honor in the, in if the Christians just laid over and let themselves get killed in Syria? Now, granted, I don't see it as quite that dire. I don't think they're going to come kill us like Muslims would. I don't think the secular progressive left is going to murder us. So it, it might be a little hyperbolic, but I I can say this of Dreher, and the folks making that argument. I can at least. I disagree with it. I've decided. By the way, at some level, I was working through this live on the air just now. I didn't know where I was going to come down, but I see the argument that it's not virtuous to let yourself get killed. It's not virtuous to let yourself be taken advantage of, but it's also not virtuous to defend yourself by turning your back on your principles or your conscience. Now, some folks, I guess... Their conscience is not, I don't know, is not significant as mine or something and can do both at the same time. I'm sure that's the case. They can they can include themselves in partisan fights, be very political, look for power and want to use their power to impose their will on others. I can't do that. Not My conscience won't allow me. I'm not saying your conscience is weak if it will allow you. I know that I can't, and just because the times got darker, my standards can't change. That's what, that is what is what got me the most with this argument from the more aggressive people. They're basically saying there was a time period where there was one set of tactics would have been immoral, but that, that time is no longer here, and now the tactics that we would have said are immoral, they're not immoral anymore, and now we can go after power and use it. Uh, I was reading one of those Dreher articles and he, he straight up makes the argument. Freedom is bad. Freedom won't work. Liberty doesn't work if one side is willing to take power and use the use the free environment to get power to subjugate the other side. Basically to use freedom to destroy freedom. And that's what he's arguing. He's arguing that freedom is now being used for evil. So let's use let's use our freedom to go get power and stop allowing evil, which only gets us back into the odd discussion from last week about what things the Bible calls evil do you outlaw and what do you let people be free to, to do and free to sin. I have to sum this up. I, I don't want to take the whole show for this. I just I wanted you to know that's the argument happening out there. And I think we all need to decide where we fit on that spectrum. Do we think that the times have gotten so dark that we just need to sign up with, I'll just, I'll speak very plainly here. I I usually like to be very vague with these things, but are, has the, have the days gotten so dark that we just sign up and we are with the Republican party very publicly saying elect Republicans. They defend us. They don't hate our guts. They're not, they're not trying to end our freedom of worship and our freedom of conscience and our freedom of speech. They have their flaws, but they are our Bashar al-Assad. They will, they will protect us from the predations of those who hate us. I'm just in, all the way in for them. Are we there? Or on one other extreme, do we just say, even if we lose, even if we lose our freedom, we lose our liberty, we lose our freedom of speech, at some point, the freedom of worship is curtailed. We are not going to try to take power and do, and, and do things to hurt our enemies. It's kind of vague. What I, I, Sometimes I wish I understood more what the more militant voices like Matt Walsh want to do, the more militant voices like Rod or what they want to do with the power they get. But our... our Are we on the other end of that just saying, whatever the consequences, I'm just going to be faithful, but I'm never going to full sail sign up with a very flawed political instrument. And there's probably a lot of gradations in between. Got to have some faith, excuse me, got to have some grace for each other when we fall on different parts of that spectrum. As I was, this final thought for me. As I was reading through all this, preparing to give you this information, the call to love your enemies kept occurring to me. Peter and Paul were writing, for that matter, John, as he wrote the Revelation. They often wrote about loving your enemy at a time where the enemy was really dark. The enemy was really violent. The enemy... Took no prisoners when it came to the Christian church. That's the environment into which Peter and Paul and John write often. Love your enemies. At the same time, as I I want to love my enemies, I think there is a call there that they didn't say love the people that disagree with you. They said love your enemies. They identified them as enemies. We can acknowledge. We have enemies. In the secular progressive left world, there are people who want to silence me. Silence you. They want your kids out of your homeschool or Christian school, and they want to be able to teach them whatever they want in their public school. They want all of their values of gender, sexuality, forced on you. They do. We have enemies. And somehow we're going to have to love them. So I I think the way that looks is inside your conscience and inside of ethics, we use whatever structures we can governmentally to defend ourselves but not defending ourselves at the cost of our principles. Because in the end, that's a losing anyway. At least that's my take. I know that's a lot. And I know there's a lot to process. I'd love your thoughts. I know I have a lot of very smart people who listen, very thoughtful people that listen. Maybe you can tell I'm even struggling with where I've land. So I would love your thoughts at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at Gmail.com. You can also find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and message me there. When we come back, I'm not quite sure what we'll do yet, but I'm sure it'll be a ton of fun. It will be where education meets entertainment. We'll do that when you return for the rest of The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on His Radio Talk. I have mentioned a few times lately how I limit my news consumption. I think that is healthy for our emotions and our minds to limit what our phones and our news media companies make us think about. However, even in my limited news consumption, I have picked up some themes that I want to respond to here in our final segment. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Glad you are here. Let's jump into it. Here's the theme. Ultimately, voters, the American people, I hate to be a jerk, voters know very little. Here are the two examples I want to give you. I have heard, I don't know, a gajillion times over the last two weeks, a majority of Americans don't want to see Roe Ro versus Wade overturned. It's the biggest news in the world, right? It's everyone. It's what everyone talks about constantly. It's almost 70% of Americans don't want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. <laughs> and then I see in the same data set, listen to me, I mean this. In the same data set, as in there's 20 questions being asked, one is, do you want to see Roe versus Wade overturned? And 69% of Americans say no. And then you say, do you think abortion should be banned after 15 weeks? And like 53 of Americans say Yes. <laughs> you what that tells me? You don't know what Roe does, do you? When someone asks, do you want Roe versus Wade to be overturned? They think that means, some chunk of Americans truly mean think it means, abortion is banned. And I'm trying to help fix that. I wish more people would help us all get that fixed. The consequence of Roe versus Wade being overturned is only that the states get to decide. And I think that's people on both sides. There are people who will, Celebrate the day it's official that Roe versus Wade is overturned, and they'll come to a rude awakening a day or two later when someone informs them, "Yeah, you know that like abortions are still happening right now and will continue to happen for decades to come because it's still legal in other states, right?" I think I've told you this very sad story before. I can't remember who reported it first, but there was a, I'm sure, I'm sure, sweet old lady who went into a doctor's office very soon after the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and was confused when she was given a bill. Very confused and kind of got upset because she she thought the Affordable Care Act was a, a bill that means she never has to pay for health care again. In the same way, there, there, will, there are people acting right now like abortion might be banned, and probably some thinking from the other direction, yay, it's going to be banned! But what it tells me is that the American voter just knows very little, it's very low inf- information. It was in a a national survey from ABC News. They had a they had a poll that said fifty four percent said the court should. I'm reading it live now. Fifty four percent said they should uphold Roe. And then the same people said, where is it? Fifty seven percent said they. They think banning abortions after 15 weeks is appropriate. How can... Like, only if you don't know what Roe is, can you hold both positions at the same time. So, there's one. Like I, just, I think it's important that we are not swayed by... The majority of people think, hey, who cares? The majority of people are morons. I, I know that's mean. But, guys, come on, honestly... I have, I have in the past, wanted to get a camera crew from North Greenville, go downtown Greenville, and just ask folks about civics, what they know about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. But even if you just went with modern-day things in the news, we don't have a largely informed populace. And that's, as an informed person, and if you're listening to this, I suspect I, I attract informed people. People that know what's going on or want to know what's going on. It is our it is incumbent upon us to kindly and gently lead and teach others facts. So that's that's one thing I saw that made me go, yeah, the American people just don't know what's going on. They don't. They may say they're for something, they don't know what it means. Here's another one. We are in a horrific inflationary cycle, aren't we? Have you who? have you bought gas lately have you compared I hope you I hope you do this this is good financial management I hope you can look year over year at what you spent in April of 2021 on groceries and then look what you spent last month I mean goodness it is it's bad out there I, f- I feel for families I'm I'm in a household of one. In about six months, it'll be a household of two. It's Well, I say that, and then there's five dogs in the house, and all their stuff's inflated, too, to feed and house and properly care for a bunch of animals. Uh, Anyway, so it's horribly inflated out there. And the president of the United States is getting some blame, and some blame deservedly so. He's getting some blame for this. But as I've explained recently, let me, uh, I should, let me rephrase. The president is getting most of the blame. He's getting most of the blame for how expensive everything is, so much so that as of this recording, it was the day that he decided to do a press conference to say, I feel your pain. We know inflation's bad. We're doing everything we can to get control of it. This, They're feeling the pressure to respond to inflation because they know on average, the, uh, the average American is blaming the president for it. But guys, I, I gotta say out loud, if, if the previous president would have won re-election, we wouldn't be facing as bad inflation, but we would be facing it. Because again, from the moment we did 15 days to sl- slow the spread, we were going to have this inflationary period. When we decided to shut down the world, to stop building houses, to stop drilling for oil and refining it at the pace that we were, when we decide to shut down factories for periods of time and send people home so they're short-staffed when there's even a sniffle, when we disrupted the entire world economy for COVID, we were never not going to have this inflationary cycle. Because while we shut everything down and restricted supply, we did the other stupid thing. And just sent gajillions of dollars to everyone. This was always going to happen, and as I will remind you, Republicans were in control of the Senate and the presidency when we spent those gajillion dollars, restricting supply and increasing demand by giving out all that money. This was always going to happen. Now, at the same time, the president of the United States came in to office, and for no good reason whatsoever. Just decided to spend a few more trillion. We'd already had been spending trillions, decided to go ahead and leave more money in people's pockets by uh, the student loan forgiveness, pro- not forgiveness, but postponement of payments. I mean, we have he's done what he can, too, to push more money into the economy, and for especially the first year of his presidency, continuing on with the madness of shutdowns, continuing on with the madness of testing and vaccination regimes that Diminish the workforce, and even those who were vaccinated, getting sent home when they're symptomatic. Like we, We did this to ourselves, but the American mind doesn't get that complex. The American mind just sees, all right, these are the people in charge. We have inflation. I blame them. They did it. Now, that's convenient for folks on the right, but it's not fully correct. Inflation was caused over the last two years, and we're just having to pay the price now. I have a couple more things. I only have like two minutes. What should I pick? I pick this one. Since I mentioned the Roe versus Wade thing a minute ago, I should also mention this. I continue to also hear, everyone tells me how the abortion issue is going to really be helpful for leftist candidates in November. It's going to fire some people up. I already explained last week how that's not true. Or no, what was that? I did a bonus episode on that. Or it was a blog. Yeah, if you don't read blogs at coreytruax.com, coreytruax.com. I've been doing a few more of those lately. And I've just broke down how that's not true. People vote on the things that are important, most important to them. And the voter profile for 2022 has not changed. The voter profile is most enthusiastic to vote when they are worried about inflation, the economy, and crime. And those are all going to be voters that cut against the left. But I started thinking about where I might be able to gather data on this. And I... Texas was perfect. Texas codified their, was that a six week abortion ban? I think it was six weeks. That was in May. And so I just went to real clear politics. I went to a couple Texas newspapers to track their polling. I mean, it's a fairly red state. It's not, the point wasn't to see if Texas politicians in the state Senate and the governorship would suffer like, suffer losses, but to see did they become less popular and did their opponents become more popular and what I found was where Greg Abbott was polling 53-40 against his opponent Beto O'Rourke before that decision, for a period of time he was polling like 49-44 ahead and it took about two two months Uh, that was May of 2021 when they passed the law it took about two months and he was right back to dominating again and so we got to actually have a laboratory on this theory that this decision is going to be grateful great excuse me, very helpful to the left. And it just hasn't panned out and I don't think it will in November. I'm always grateful when you listen to the Corey True Act Show. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then everybody, peace and love.